welcome to Inter-Revolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, denial, destruction, and death. Let's confront our use of alcohol and why we pretend it's the okay drug. You mean it isn't? <laughs> well, alcohol has blood on its hands. Its role in U.S. history includes the slave trade and organized crime. It's implicated in over half the incarcerations in the U.S., especially violent crimes. Child abuse, domestic violence, loss of work, drunk driving are its daily results. It damages our health and leads to 88,000 deaths a year. Kids nab some from the family cupboard and become hopelessly addicted. Anybody with a couple of bucks can buy it. Tons of money is spent trying to free ourselves from it. Millions of lives are ruined as wage earners become dysfunctional and parents become angry, violent, and incompetent. There is treatment for alcoholism, and we have improved our awareness around drunk driving. But alcohol itself remains not only legal and available, but the sacred cow of drugs. Doctors even recommend it. Why? What makes it the okay drug? Race? Class? Money? We're not recommending prohibition. But today, let's take on alcohol, why we give it a pass, and what we're paying for our denial. And now, here's Beth. Well, I can't wait to get into this topic. I mean, I've been like looking forward to this day because I I just think it's like just another one of those many things in our society that we just assume, well, it's always been this way, so why not? You know, and we don't think about it, we don't look at it, we don't examine it. And today, we are very fortunate to have with us uh, Chris Reese, who uh, we're going to bring on later, but we're going to say hello right now. Chris uh, has been doing some research for us on this topic. So, uh, she is armed and dangerous, and uh, she also has a lot of personal experience with it, and so do I, as a matter of fact. Oh. More skeletons out of my closet. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway. Your closet overfloweth. Oh, it does. It does. You know. Anyway, uh, I'm very much looking forward to this because I think that most of us are kind of like go numb uh, around the issue of alcohol. Even though we are, we noticed last week, I think we had it in the news, that more and more Americans are acknowledging that alcoholism is a problem, that alcohol is a problem, but we still act as though, <laughs> have a drink, you know. And uh, it, what is wrong with us? Why don't we get it? I'm not suggesting that we go around making it illegal, but I'm saying, why do we give it a pass and we don't give other drugs a pass? And when are we going to really take it on and get honest about how alcohol has impacted us. So we're going to get into that later. But in the meantime, we have Mr. James with the news of the Inner Revolution. For those of you who are new to us, the Inner Revolution is about a movement of consciousness towards oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Yes, it's what we need the most in our world. Take it away, James. Okay, some weeks are just full of terrible news stories, and we had plenty of those again this week. For example, there were revelations of officials deliberately skewing the reporting of lead in the water of Flint, Michigan. But today, we're featuring some interesting stories about shifting paradigms. Some of them are sure to make you smile. Let's start with three items which demonstrate shifting consciousness linked with good old ingenuity and or technology. The first was reported by The Guardian on April the 22nd, and it shows what ingenuity can accomplish. 
According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 40% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions come from hauling, making, using, and throwing away stuff and food. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? 40%. 40%? Yeah. On average, every American produces nearly three pounds of trash per day. That would be me. <laughs> We're in there. Yeah, we are. There is now a zero-waste lifestyle movement led largely by young millennials like Lauren Singer of Trash is for Tossers, <laughs> Celia Ristow of Litterless, and Catherine Kellogg, whose trash for the past year, that is, anything that hasn't been composted or recycled, fits in an eight-ounce jar. Mm. Most of these leaders trace the impetus for this lifestyle to B. Johnson, the author of Zero Waste Home. The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Your Waste. One practitioner said she tried living zero waste for a month, then three months, and then a year, and stated, once I realized how easy it was, it kind of stuck with me. For example, you can shop at bulk stores, do recycling and municipal po composting. You can avoid buying disposable products. You can always use a reusable water bottle. These are just a few examples of creating a zero waste lifestyle. Beth? Well, I want to know how to create a zero waste. I do all that stuff. But when I order something, it comes in all this plastic packaging and, and then with all that cardboard. And, you know, I don't know what to do about that. So I want to know more about this because I am horrified by the packaging of everything we get. And I certainly couldn't fit all of my waste into an eight-ounce jar. So that's all I have to say. So please carry on with the news. Okay, very good. Now, speaking about waste, here's the second uh, and it's a cool story from the Daily Good, April the 21st. This one demonstrates our coupling consciousness with technology. French cheesemakers are using production waste to make electricity by, <laughs> by using the way that comes from cheese production to fuel biogas reactors that generate electricity in volume. Go figure. Really? <laughs> the American Biogas... Biogas Council estimates that there are up to 1 million biogas processing containers scattered around the world producing sustainable green energy. Biogas production has been proposed for everything from a sustainable way to power homes in the developing world to a solution for disposing of the 12 tons of poop produced by base, base camps on Mount Everest every year. <laughs> <laughs> Biogas can be used for cooking, heating, lighting, and more. Or it can be transformed into electricity. Human ingenuity for the good. And for our final story on consciousness, ingenuity, and technology, this was reported by Newsweek this month. As many of you know, India has had a dismal record of protecting women against rape and violent crime. Well, here's a positive story which can help turn the tide. India will reduce rape panic buttons, well, I'm sorry, will introduce rape panic buttons on cell phones. India reported more than 36,000 rapes in 2014, among a total of 337,922 crimes against women, which actually represents an increase from previous years. In order to provide safety to women in distressed situations, reads a press release from the Ministry of Women and Child Development, it is important to, to enable them to send out a distress signal to a family member or the police authorities so that they can be rescued. So beginning next year, all mobile phones sold in India will be required to add a panic button feature. Starting in January 2018, phones will also need to allow their location to be identified via satellite GPS. 
It's a game changer, said Minister of Women and Child Development, Manika Sanjay Gandhi, who believes the new panic button will help make women feel safe and serve as a deterrent to perpetrators. We certainly hope so. Let's see how these women are treated when they do report their assaults. Yeah, yeah. Go on. <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay. And now we're going to share a couple of other positive stories on diverse topics. The first is from the Huffington Post and is dated April the 18th. It's about how the world's Muslims are demanding climate action now. We tend to see stories about Muslims centered around radical Islamic terrorism or the persecution of Muslims. How great to see another perspective on who Muslim people are, and it's great to see Muslims taking leadership in switching from fossil fuels, especially in light of how much their wealth has depended on them. So here goes. With, wor with world leaders having gathered in New York on April 22nd to reaffirm the commitment they made to end the fossil fuel era in Paris last December, the global Muslim community, made up of around 1.6 billion followers, are also demanding climate action now. On April the 17th, some 270 faith leaders issued an urgent call to faith communities around the world to divest their money from fossil fuels and reinvest it in renewable energy solutions. Additional actions have included the Islamic Development Banks having agreed with the United Nations Environment Program to use Islamic finance to combat climate change and food insecurity. In February, the world's largest solar power plant opened in Morocco to provide power for over 1 million homes by 2018. At the beginning of April, Saudi Arabia's deputy crown prince announced the country's intention to create a $2 trillion mega fund to help it transition to the post-oil era. Islamic Relief has been building solar-powered homes in places like Bangladesh and installing water harvesting systems in Kenya. Now we think that's really exciting. Meanwhile, back at home, we are seeing the police trying out new approaches to deal with violent people who are mentally ill. And the approach involves more than just police. This demonstrates some paradigm busting and experimentation. The story was reported in the New York Times on April the 25th. In response to high-profile shootings of people with mental illness, police departments around the country are turning to crisis intervention training to reduce violence. As most of us know, people with mental illnesses are overrepresented among civilians involved in police shootings. 25% or more of people fatally shot by the police have had some form of mental disorder. Now, right? listen to that. Yeah. 25%. Yeah. Yeah. Of the people who have been fatally uh, shot by police have had mental disorders. Yeah. That's a lot of people. So okay. maybe they need a treatment instead of a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, Portland, the Portland, Oregon Police Bureau, prodded in part by the 2012 findings of a Justice Department investigation, has spent years putting in place an intensive training program and protocols for how officers deal with people with mental illness, a model pioneered in Memphis almost three decades ago and known as Crisis Intervention Team Training, CIT. Studies have found that training can alter the way officers view people with mental illness. And the approach, which teaches officers a way to diffuse potentially violent encounters before force becomes necessary, is useful for officers facing any volatile situation, even if a mental health crisis is not involved, law enforcement experts say. Yeah, like there's, I, I don't know if there's anybody left on the planet who is not suffering from a mental health crisis. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, <go. laughs> 
That's true. <laughs> really. Go on, James. Okay. <laughs> Portland's program, which is based on CIT, is having an impact because it has the full backing of the police department's leadership, constant checks on its effectiveness, and collaboration with the mental health community. The training is great, but it's not magic, said Laura Usher, coordinator of crisis intervention team training for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. The thing that actually transforms the way the system works is when everyone gets together. We hope that they have great success, and we love the aspect of mutual support. And finally, here's a story which shows that some young Jews are also abandoning old paradigms and thinking outside their box. This story was submitted by one of our listeners, Erica. And it is reported by truthout.com, and is dated April the 22nd. As we know, Passover is a holiday that celebrates the exodus from Egypt under the leadership of Moses thousands of years ago. Its celebration comes each spring around the same time as Easter. This Passover, young Jews across the United States, under the banner of If Not Now, are calling for a sea change in American Jewish consciousness and an end to American Jewish support for the Israeli occupation in the Middle East. On April the 19th, 100 young American Jews stood in the office lobby of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee to say they support freedom and dignity for all Palestinians and Israelis. This week, in New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and San Francisco, hundreds of young American Jews are holding ritual protests and getting arrested to say they have had enough. They feel the yearning of a generation to tell a new story of what it means to be Jewish. In many synagogues and temples, Jews are taught that to be American and Jewish meant to unquestioningly support a nation that they see as being engaged in violent oppression and occupation. If not now, members see themselves as choosing freedom and dignity for all, including Palestinians, Israelis, and American Jews. Interesting that this is happening around the same time that candidate Bernie Sanders has also dared to question the rubber stamping of all Israeli actions. Beth? Well, this, Pat, this last story, you know, it always uh, just cuts, you know, into my heart because, uh, you know, being from a Jewish background, having seen the impact of the Holocaust, uh, very personally having seen it in relatives, family members, those that were left, those that came over from the concentration camps or the displaced persons camps. Uh, you know, it's very, very painful, and I really have so much compassion for the people who were looking for a homeland in Palestine. And at the same time, I read history, and I, you know, and I'm, and I can put two and two together, and I could see how uh, the, you know, the British dumped their their quote Jewish problem on Palestine. And um, I'm not happy with the uh, with anybody's behavior in the Middle East. To be perfectly honest with you, but the but to deny that there is an occupation <laughs> is crazy, and to and to not recognize you know that the Palestinians have rights too is kind of corrupt. So um, I love the fact that these people are not saying, oh, we're for the Palestinians, we're against the Jews or the Israelis. It's like they're saying, hey, everybody's got. We've got to consider everybody here. And that's such a huge step. And, you know, the American government, and I tell you something, I, you know, I've lived in this country a long time because I was born 71 years ago. <laughs> and I know how much anti-Semitism there is here, even now, even among government officials. And, and you know, and they go out there, they're, they're slapping 
uh, the backs of the right-wing people like Netanyahu, and you, you look at it and you say, these people are so damned hypocritical. Because, you know, there's so, still so much anti-Semitism, and yet they're so in favor of Israel because it's like a collusion going on there. And there's no support for the Israeli peace movement, which is also there. So I think that's kind of exciting. So, talking about smashing paradigms, Chris, are you with us? Are you ready to go? Yes, I'm here, ready to go. Okay. Thank you for having me. Well, you're very, very welcome. So we really want to get into the story about alcohol because, see, I'm going to share something, too, because, like, I divulged my age, which I often do. So, uh, you know, in the dark ages when I was growing up, I remember so distinctly being, like, 16 years old. That's when I started college. Um, There were, like, ads for alcohol and cigarettes, you know, and the sophisticated woman would sit there with a cigarette in her hand and a drink, right? And that was it. And, you know, you saw it in the movies and you saw it in advertising. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to college. I'm 16. I'm becoming a woman. I've got a drink and I've got a smoke. Well, <clears throat> you know, it was painful in every way. But I just assumed that that was just normal because that was the culture we grew up in. And uh, sad to say, to some degree, it still is. There's a lot more awareness, certainly more awareness about tobacco, but there isn't yet that awareness about alcohol. What do you, you know, we make this big fuss about drugs, but we don't make a big fuss about alcohol. So again, we're not saying now that we should um, criminalize alcohol, and we're going to talk about prohibition because that's a fascinating topic. But we are saying, why the hell do we treat alcohol and drugs differently, what does that have to do with sex, race, or class? And, um, you know, why are we in such denial about it? And when are we going to face up to the fact that alcohol is deadly? So, Chris, what did you grow up thinking about alcohol? You're of a bit younger generation. Uh, you, you don't know, have I'm, to disclose, disclose your I, age. I, <laughs> I, I don't mind disclosing my age. I'm, I'm 54. and um, I'm your spring up, chicken. <laughs> I know. I grew up um, white middle class and um, in the Southwest. And that really hit, hit home when you said that there was that image of a sophisticated woman has a cocktail in her hand and a cigarette because that's definitely what I grew up with as an illusion and seeing that in the media, that that was held out as sophisticated. However, in my own life, I saw um, alcoholism on both sides of the family, men and women, and it wasn't pretty. There was plenty of country club drinking, and there was plenty of, you know, drunk at home being mean behavior. Um, there were, um, I would, I was binge drinking by the time I was in seventh grade at a, at a, Catholic school that was a quote unquote, you know, good school. And like I said, I mean, I grew up, you know, white middle class, country club, tennis lessons, the whole bit. So this was in, this was in the uh, late sixties, early seventies. And so there was also the hippie thing going on and alcohol was certainly considered by society to be very acceptable. And, um, drugs were, you know, scary and edgy Right, right. But alcohol was normal and okay because everybody did it, right? Except- right, but, but, but I just want to say, funny enough, when I was in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, again, 
at a private school, it was easier to get pot than alcohol because there were other kids who you could always buy pot from. Really? And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The well, illegal so, drug. <laughs> right. And I, and I had older siblings, you know, so I had a little ah, bit of an edge. I see. And, but to get alcohol, you either had to steal it from your parents or, <laughs> or we would go stand outside of liquor stores and wait for someone to come by and we would, you know, like ask them to buy us liquor. And like, if they bought us a 12 pack, we'd give them some of our beers. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I know. I mean, it's really pretty sordid when you think about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we don't see any evidence that having, uh, alcohol be illegal for people under a certain age and where I grew up originally, it was under 18 other places under 21. We don't see that really stopping alcoholism. And in fact, I think one of the statistics that you came up with when you were doing the research for the show, and and I saw this too, is that uh, if kids start really young, they're much more likely to get addicted, and they do. You know, you you uh, listened if you go ever attended an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you would hear all kinds of people talking about how they started drinking so young. I, on the other hand, right. never saw drinking at home, except, you know, every once in a blue moon, my father would have some kind of a drink. I forget what it was called. There was one kind of drink that he had. There was not a lot of drinking in, in our home, and I didn't even know that Jews drank until much later in life. I always thought that Jews didn't drink except at Passover, when uh, I would get drunk having a sniff of the wine at the table, which did not stop me, by the way, from becoming an alcoholic. In, uh, you know, in my uh, late teens, I was about 19, and I was going through a horrible marriage and a horrible divorce, and I immediately, I started drinking, and I became an alcoholic. Earlier, uh, you know, guys would take me out a date and give me a drink, and I was on the floor. I have no capacity to tolerate alcohol. I'm very super sensitive. I'm sensitive to everything. I, you know, I can't smell coffee without my heart thumping. So, uh, you know, alcohol just killed me, but it didn't stop me from becoming hopelessly addicted to it because I couldn't stop myself once I started drinking and I could feel that relaxation and then the craving would start and add the sugar because I always went for the sweet drinks like the rum and cokes or the brandy Alexanders or the, you know, uh, some of those other, the tequila, whatever those, margaritas, uh, daiquiris, you know, I loved it. And I was addicted to the sugar too. And of course, a lot of alcohol is made from sugar. So, uh, you know, you put it together and you're on a downward spiral to being hopelessly addicted. And it's just, and the emotional as well as the physiological drive, it, it takes down so many people. And I'm happy to say that I have not had a drink since, uh, I think it was 1980. <laughs> so that's 41 years. But it took me a year of, of being sober to actually get that monkey off my back where I didn't think about drinking all the time. And I have so much compassion for people who are addicted to alcohol because it's like any addiction. It's horrible. And it, ha- and, uh, it always made me throw up, have migraines. I had the hangover in the middle of the second drink. But it, I couldn't stop. And there was nobody out there who said, Beth, this is a problem because in my world, everybody was drinking. That's what we did after work. You left the factory at midnight after, you know, working a night shift. Everybody went to the bar 
in Cleveland because what else were you going to do? Or you left the office at 5 o'clock and you went to the cocktail lounge. That's the difference between being a white-collar worker and a blue-collar worker. The white-collar workers went to the cocktail lounges and the blue-collar workers went to the bars, right? <laughs> Same well, I think I, I think you really you're really speaking to the problem because, you know, if someone's like has to buy heroin, they're putting themselves in a dangerous situation and they're clearly engaging in illegal activity to even go out and buy it and then obviously to use it. Um, But if you're, if you look at alcohol, you know, it's very socially acceptable and encouraged. Um, I'm in the financial industry and, and in marketing and sales and people encourage binge drinking, getting hammered is fine yeah. And uh, it's not just the industry I'm in, and, and there are statistics about just the rise in binge drinking generally. It's going up, and it's starting at the age of 12. So, um, you know, it's considered virile. It's sexy. Um, you know, that's how yeah. you're part of the crowd. You, yeah. you get hammered, and it's there. There's nothing. It, it, there's nothing in it like. Using heroin, right? There's no, there's yeah. no like societal norm against it. There's yeah. no, there's no internal barometer going. Oh, this is illegal. This is illegal. This is illegal. It's like the internal barometer is saying, "Do it. Be part of." Then you can talk about it tomorrow, and you guys can also plan your next binge. Oh, that is so true. I think that's even more true for men that they brag about how much they drank. That's like, true. That's true. That's just, but no, I see, how much you I can see, drink without I going see, under the table. Right. No. I see women who who drink a lot and talk about it, and they like oh when they're God. planning where they're planning. It's it's not like the it's not like everyone's standing around going, "I had six green drinks, no, I had eight. But it's 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 a it's a very calculated plan to know where you're going to go for happy hour or or how much alcohol you're going to take on that camping trip. You know who's going to drive, or if you're going to take Uber. I mean, it's it's all calculated around getting absolutely smashed. Yeah, without any consequences. Now, one of the the good things about today, uh, in today's world, well, there's a couple of things that are better. One is at least there's disapproval of drunk driving. Believe it or not, there was a time when nobody even lifted an eyebrow or did anything about that. And there has been some movement around that, that drunk driving actually gets punished. Now, of course, we don't want people to be punished. We want people uh, to get well, but at least people get to send to, uh, you know, AA meetings and so on. Um, so there is a little bit more there, and there is uh, some more awareness, but still the social approval of drinking is really phenomenal when you think how damaging it is. Chris, why don't you bring to the fore for the people who aren't aware some of the damage, uh, the harm that is created by alcohol? Sure. Well, first of all, um, alcohol is considered a group one carcinogen. So there is clear evidence that alcohol can cause cancer of the oral cavity, the pharynx, the larynx, the liver, you know, your colorectum, and and also breast cancer. And, uh, you know, when when we think about the naivete around alcohol, you know, there's all this dialogue about make sure you have uh, a colonoscopy by a certain age or make sure you're doing your regular check to make sure you don't have any lumps in your breasts. But no one's saying alcohol and also the consumption of sugar directly relates to cancer. So, you know, we hide it. Yes. Um, 
the costs associated with alcohol relate to things like workplace productivity loss, 72% of the total cost, healthcare expenses for problem caused by excessive drinking, 11% of total costs, 24 to 40%. This is a big number. 24 to 40% of all patients in the United States in the hospital, if you take out maternity, are being treated for complications of alcohol-related problems. Isn't that astounding? Yeah. And then here's another one that's pretty wild. Healthcare costs related to alcohol abuse are not limited just to the user. Children of alcoholics who are admitted to the hospital average 62% more hospital days. 62%, that's huge. Yeah, I wonder why. Is it neglect? 29% longer stays. You know, I don't have the details on that. Right, but why that is, well, you know, as having been a counselor for, you know, more years than some of our listeners have been alive, uh, I mean, I have had... Client after client after client after client come in and their their parents were alcoholics or their mother was an alcoholic, their father was an alcoholic, and the, the parent wasn't available, wasn't cooking, uh, wasn't uh, taking care of the kids, uh, or there was so much stress. I mean, look at the stress. Alcoholics, in my experience, I have no statistics on this, can get pretty damned angry and out of control. Well, yeah. that, 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 the, the research shows that when there's alcohol-related crime, a lot, of it, a lot of it happens amongst people that know each other. Yeah. And it relates to abusive situations and often can be in the home. And things like violence against children, um, two-thirds of victims who were attacked by an intimate, this is just all crimes together, if you're a victim of a crime and you were attacked by someone that you know, two-thirds of them reported that alcohol had been involved. Yeah. So it's, it's at home. It's happening at home. Um, yes. And so it's not just the physical abuse that happens with uh, people who are out of control in their behavior because they've been drinking. And some of them wouldn't even identify as alcoholics, but it just kind of uh, it allows them to be more free. And self-expressed, right? Uh, but also the emotional damage of all that yelling and screaming and yes. the fear that children grow up with. Or they have a drunk or tipsy parent driving a car and they are captive in the back seat. You know, it's and, – and, and, and yet we don't pay attention. In fact, I think you had a statistic there about how much more violence – is associated with alcohol than with drugs. Yes, in terms of both incarceration rates, um, for both, when you look at it, there are far more people incarcerated related to alcohol crimes than there are related to drug-related crimes. And the violence of the crime goes up when it's alcohol-related. Many, many drug-use dependency crimes are related to things like burglary or theft. They want to get, you know, something that they can quickly sell to feed their habit. Uh, 17% of state prisoners, 18% of federal inmates say have said that they committed their current offenses just to obtain money for drugs. There, there are links certainly between drug use in women and men and children. And that's not, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over that. But, but when you look at Who's sitting in prison, and if they did something that was violent, is it more likely to have been 
while under the influence of alcohol or drugs, it's alcohol. And when I say violent, I mean murder, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Right. So I hope some of you out there are just saying, what? I didn't know that. (laughs) I I didn't realize that. that. But I, I think that, you know, I think that one of the challenges that we have really as a society is to say, when are we going to stop and feel? Because I, it, it, when, when you look at the use of alcohol, like for example, in poverty, men are more likely than women to use alcohol and they are pulling the much needed money away from feeding the family to use alcohol, right? right and statistically, right. it's more often men. Now, they're in a very dire, desperate situation. They don't see, you know, they don't have hope for themselves. They don't have hope for their children. They don't see a way to earn a decent, you know, wage. Uh, so, their, you know, their life feels bleak, right? And Yeah. So, people are turning to what's readily available. Alcohol is certainly readily available. Now, the numbers switch, and women become heavier users when they get into middle-level management positions. Yes. So, what it tells me is, you know, all of a sudden the women are in these positions where they have incredible amounts of stress. They feel conflict about children at home, trying to manage their job, competing with men, what kind of sexual harassment may they be, you know, experiencing at work, all that stuff, right? So, you know, what we're not talking about is why are we shoving something in our body not to feel? And, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when, you, when you look at all of these people with alcohol problems and drug problems who are incarcerated we see clearly that if there could be intervention programs that could help people get sober and then provide some consistent support, that so much of this crime wouldn't happen. And you and I both know from getting sober, you know, I got sober a long time ago, that, and this is the part that really I want to say from my heart to anyone out there who listens to the show who is consuming a lot of alcohol, you tell yourself, you know what, I'm just going to cut down on my drinking. But that's not the problem. You put down the bottle and guess what? You have to face yourself. And you and the alcohol is just something that you've been using to not face yourself in your own pain. And this, you know, it really does bring tears to my eyes. You know, and thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's where I found my home that helped me get sober. And I found people who could hear my story and listen to it, you know, and find a therapist like Beth. You know, find alcohol treatment programs. Like, putting down the bottle is the first step. It's a hard step, no doubt. A very, very hard step, and it feels insurmountable. But that's just the beginning of a process of dealing with all of the pain and the shame that you have stuffed through your alcoholic consumption. Right, or through the popping of the pills, which becomes another way. You know, you get the prescription drugs when you can't use the alcohol anymore. Yes. Yes, I really want to support what Chris is saying. And uh, I have a personal experience with that because even though I've got sober and stayed sober, even though it was tough, um, I I have an ex-husband who did not. He was sober for 11 years, and he lost his sobriety. He started to drink again. And it was unbelievable to me to see how he was a a real good-looking, self-conscious in that way, not necessarily a good way, but he was very aware of his looks and he was always clean and immaculate and all of that. Within the shortest period of time, he looked homeless. And uh, I'm not 
trying to shame homeless people, but he looked like he, he, he stopped taking showers. He, his hair became bedraggled. He lost weight. He, he be just completely went down the sewer, and it was as though he had never stopped drinking. He was uh, a user. He smoked dope, and uh, occasionally he used uh, drugs too, but mostly he was an alcoholic. And I don't know whatever happened to him. You know, he got lost in, in, in it, and he never came back. And he did not get uh, counseling. He had been an alcoholism counselor himself, but he he hit the wall in terms of his own emotional development, and he stopped going to meetings, and he didn't d- use anything else, and he thought he could just do it himself, and he couldn't. And it was it was devastating to me as well as to him. So I've seen it up close, firsthand. Mm-hmm. I know you have too, Chris, about people's lives. Young people, old people just going down the drain. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why our society, we've already started touching on this, you know, why we ignore it. And the one thing you're talking about is because we would have to face ourselves. So, you know, we have the acceptable addiction that we never have to really ask ourselves why we're drinking because everybody else is drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only when it gets too bad that we even begin to consider it. But I look at it now and I think, what the hell did I ever put a drop of alcohol in my body for it? To start with, it's poison. Then there is the money part, the business side. You have some mm-hmm. stats on that too, Chris. Yeah, it's a $400 billion industry. The, um, the amount of lobbying that the alcohol industry spends uh, is more than the gun lobby. Which seems which seems insane to me because I feel like the gun lobbies everywhere, right? Right. But it's more. It's actually more. Um, yeah, it's a four hundred billion dollar um, industry in the U.S. generating nearly ninety billion in wages and over four million jobs. This is pretty wild. Sixty six percent of all jobs in the United States in two thousand fourteen were related to the food services and drinking places industry. So those are lumped together because of, you know, restaurants serve alcohol. Right. But right. that's huge. That's yeah, it two is. Two thirds. And so we've seen that, you know, everybody does it. We've seen that we would have to face ourselves. We've seen that there's a huge amount of money, <laughs> huge, as to quote Bernie Sanders, uh, that's, uh, you know, this business. And um, there is a racial aspect of this, too. If you compare who drinks and who doesn't drink. There is a class aspect too. I I was stunned to see the statistics that showed that the higher educated people tend to use more alcohol. Yeah, definitely. There was a a, um, Gallup poll where people were asked to self-report, obviously anonymously. If your household income is over $75,000, 78% of the people are drinking. If it's less than thirty thousand dollars, forty-five percent of the of the people are drinking. So that's a pretty big jump. If you're a col- <laughs> if you're a college grad, eighty percent of college grads are drinking. High school or less, fifty-two percent. And what one of the things that I was reading about poverty and alcohol is that, uh, you know, it's sucking away that a very vital part of the family's you know meager resources to buy food. Yeah. And um, that and cigarettes, that and cigarettes. But but often families in a, at a certain socioeconomic level think that when there's a celebration, 
what they have to do is throw out a lot of liquor and a lot of food. So the people that can least afford it are actually spending all this money on alcohol, you know, at Christmas, at a birthday party, celebrating graduation or what have you. And so part of the education around trying to eliminate poverty in our country is help people to see that there actually could be a different way to celebrate, you know? Yeah. Which really, I I thought that was very interesting. Um, You know, and again, I'm upper middle class, so I'm not worried about that. You know, that's not on my mind. And I've been sober so long, so I don't even think about it. Um, But yeah, that, that was a very interesting statistic. When you look at race... Uh, let's see, this is percentage of Americans suffering from alcohol abuse or alcoholism in their lifetime. 43% of Native Americans. Isn't that a horrible statistic? It's a horrible statistic. And there was a big lawsuit a couple of years ago. This, it, it's hard not to cry about this. There's a little town called White Clay. And it's in South Dakota. No, it's in Nebraska. A little town called White Clay. And... 11 people live in the town, and it's right next to the reservation. The liquor store in White Clay sold four beer stores together, sold 4.3 million cans of beer to a town of 11 people with a dry reservation right next to it. So the tribe sued. They sued, and they basically, their, you know, their premise was, it's so obvious that you're selling alcohol that's being used for illegal reasons because 11 people can't consume 4.3 million 12-ounce cans of beer. So, you know, you are knowingly engaging in illegal activity. And um, the federal court basically said they didn't have the jurisdiction to um, enforce it, but they said, you know, you can go back to state court and try this. I couldn't find any data about whether or not they continue to try it, but this is this is something else that really broke my heart. Yeah. The same tribe, it's the Oglala Sioux tribe, in another state, a couple years later, lifted their prohibition on the sale of alcohol to try to take in the tax income to create treatment programs. So, you know, they try to have dry reservations, and that's not working. Right. And so now they're selling it on the reservation and, and trying to make some income off of it and see if that can help them. And, you know, it is. It's, it is but now show, share with us the black-white thing. Okay, so, so here are the numbers. 43% Native American, 34% white. This is in your lifetime. You're going to suffer from alcohol abuse or alcoholism. 20% Hispanic, 20% black, 11% Asian. So those are just general statistics. But when you start drilling down and you look at things like binge drinking, binge drinking is higher for Hispanics and Native Americans than it is for blacks or whites. So it's... But it's higher for whites than blacks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, see, my my nose tells me that the different way that we treat drugs and we treat alcohol has to do with race, and that uh, you know that white people, immigrants, as well as you know um, non-immigrant whites, have they drink and they don't think anything of it, but drugs you know it's like oh heroin oh meth oh this uh that cocaine it's in the ghetto right and oh. we're gonna crack down on those people 
Whereas we're not going to crack down on ourselves. See, if it's more white and if it's more middle class or upper class or better educated, there's much less, oh, look at those terrible people, even though there's so much harm from alcohol that we've been denying. See, that is... mm -hmm. I have a great statistic. I've got to tell you this. I've got a chart that goes through alcohol, heroin, crack, meth, cocaine, tobacco, amphetamines, cannabis. It goes down through about like 18 different things, ecstasy, LSD. And it shows, it measures a total quantum of harm to either yourself or others. Alcohol, the total harm is a little over 70%, but 45% of that is harm to others. Mm. So... We're sitting here going, yeah, you know, I'm just having my illegal, my, my, excuse me, I'm just sitting here, you know, enjoying my legal buzz, but 45% of the harm that happens from alcohol abuse goes to other people. As a contrast, let's look at methamphetamines. Now, I'm not advocating someone use no. methamphetamines <laughs> instead of alcohol, but on a total scale of 30, you know, 30 odd percent, so it's half that of alcohol, not even 5% of the harm is to others. Yeah. So when you look at the drug usage, even heroin, heroin's at about 55% of total harm, less than 25% of that is to someone else. Same with crack cocaine, lower impact on someone else. So, so the drugs are actually hurting the people that are ingesting them more than they are hurting other people in the community. It sounds like there needs to be an education campaign to, to really tell people about this. And to stop people at the front end and say, "Look, yeah. uh, this is this is uh, can cause all these kind of diseases and all these kind of uh, misbehaviors." Kind of like what happened with the, uh, with tobacco, uh, yeah. people began to have a distaste for it as more and more negatives became more and more public. I can. I'll I never, agree with you, James. Totally yeah, I'll, agree with you. yeah. I'll never forget when I was uh, in my twenties and I saw a poster when I was going to take the subway train that had a picture of a woman with a cigarette in her mouth. And she was bedraggled, haggard, and the, the line under it said, ain't smoking glamorous. <laughs> yeah, right. And she looked yeah. like a walking ghost. And yeah. I, that, that really made an impression on me. And then as more and more stuff came out about cigarettes, it says, oh, my God, we, I, I don't want to go near that stuff. And so if there, there was enough public education. Uh, I, and by the way, wouldn't it be a great idea if we had a warning label on every alcoholic uh, beverage that said this can be hazardous oh, to you and to others. That was part of the lawsuit of the Oglala Sioux Tribe in Nebraska against those um, four liquor stores. And they sued Amheuser-Busch and all the big manufacturers. One of their things was that they don't have appropriate um, disclosure about the potential harm. And uh-huh. the ma- the beverage manufacturers came back and said, like, well, you know, like, there's just – like there's not enough room. Like there's too much. Like that's asking too much. Of us. <laughs> yeah, I right? want to throw in some. I want to throw in something now about how this bogus bull comes out about drinking is good for your health. They were trying to tout that wine was good for your health, and uh, it's only recently that that entire research was blown up. That wine is, has not been proved to be good for your health. And so this, because the doctors drink, you know, of course, doctors right. also take drugs. But, you know, this is like mass collusion time. Yes, and it, is, as, it is mass collusion. Especially the people on top. You know, when you go to the cocktail parties, you were talking about the financial industry. If you go into the political areas, they are going to be drinking and they are not about to take on 
something that is in their culture, in the white, wealthy, white culture. And it's going to take an uproar. I hope that people are kind of pissed off as they're listening to the show and they're saying, what? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Now, I want to talk for a second about prohibition. You know, prohibition came in in 1920 as national, but there was prohibition in certain states before that. But prohibition was not about drinking. It was about the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcohol. It was never illegal to drink. Did you know that? And what I thought was fascinating about that is, see, here, when you have people who are, especially it used to be more of people of color. Now, heroin has hit the suburbs, right? And all of a sudden, everybody's, oh, my God, heroin, oh, it's so terrible. We need to do something about it. You know, we need treatment. We didn't need treatment when it was black people who were, you know, dying. They were just bad and disgusting and, you know, uh, stupid. So, um when you look at that, it was like the person who was addicted wasn't being punished during prohibition. But when we have we have um, made drugs illegal, the person who's the addict, the sick person, is punished. Not by the way that that prohibition worked that well. If there is some. You know, I was reading a whole bunch of stuff about this. Some people say that there was a decrease to a degree, in the use of alcohol. But we also know that what came out of it is exactly the same thing which has come out of the criminalization of drugs. Gangs, organized crime, violence, uh, you know, all of that came along with prohibition. It didn't stop because what you're talking about, Chris, and what you were talking about, it was why are we drinking we, we never addressed that. It was just like, I take a pledge, I'm not going to drink anymore, right? Um, and so we, we, the, the, the addiction goes on and the problem went on, but the sale and manufacture were made illegal, which of course didn't stop people from making a ton of money off it. And we've seen exactly the same thing with drugs. And, you know, when are we going to turn the same spotlight? Thank God we're beginning to look at ending mass incarceration over drugs because it, too many people are in prison. It's costing us too much money, right? But, uh, you know, have a little common sense. Maybe people who are addicted need support. They need help. Not that it's easy to stop even with help. But the same thing needs to happen around alcohol, that we need to look at it honestly. We have to say this is damaging. We have to stop punishing people for being alcoholic, but offer more treatment but take away the glamour, mm-hmm. take away the acquiescence, mm-hmm. take away the idea that this is hip, slick, or cool. Take that away from alcohol. But who do you think is going to be spearheading this? It's not going to be easy because very few people are willing to face the facts about alcoholism because of uh, race, because of class because of money, because of business. It's going to be tough, but let's start doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I totally agree. So, I feel all riled up, and we didn't have any callers because I didn't give them a chance because we had too much to say. So, Chris, talk a little bit about treatment. You know, I have... Um, I uh, I have a brother-in-law who just recently retired from the treatment industry, and we were we were having a conversation about this, and he really illuminated um, the current state of affairs. Right now, 
most insurance plans don't cover treatment. Like you used to be able to maybe get 17 to 20 grand to cover like a 30 day inpatient treatment program, but that's generally not covered anymore. Usually treatment plans will cover detox and alcohol uh, abuse, chronic alcohol abuse frequently requires a medical detox and that can be in a medical clinic or it can happen in a hospital depending upon you know the individual and how they happen to show up there, right? And like a four to five day stay is typically what's covered, but but it is a medical uh, medically monitored process. It's very different than drugs. So let's delineate between if someone is. We using only a, have like a minute. Oh, okay. To talk about this, so please so, do. I'll, I'll go quick. If someone's yeah. using opiates and they just they're just going to stop, they're not in an overdose situation. They're just going to stop. Yeah. Then, and that that does not require medical overview. Oversight. That's amazing. Even stop. though I mean, it's, it's hideous, it's terrible. Yeah, but the thing is, you have to. The thing is, you do have to monitor people's blood pressure. Am I saying the right thing? Rate, heart rate, blood pressure. Yeah, yeah heart rate and blood pressure. So, mm-hmm. now what I'm saying to you is what currently is the view of the medical community. So, like Medicare will cover alcohol detox, but not drug detox. So. Obviously, if you're overdosing, you got to go to the hospital and deal with that. I'm talking about just you, you, you're an addict and you're going to, you know, wean yourself off it. So that was very startling to me. I, I didn't realize that that was the current state of affairs. And, and I didn't know that it's considered acceptable in the medical community to wean yourself off of drugs and not be in the care of a physician. I, I didn't either, but I certainly have seen people going off alcohol and it's like, oh, my God, it's not a pretty picture. I would like to say one more thing about treatment. Uh, which is, there is a lot of problems. It's very easy to say treatment, treatment, treatment. My ex-husband went through treatment after treatment after treatment, and I've seen this happening over and over with other people too, for drugs and alcohol. But that doesn't mean we give up. And uh, people have gotten sober. And, you know, they're experimenting with different forms of treatment. But, I, you know, there are people who do recover when they get enough support. And... One of the problems with alcohol is very related to the whole story we're talking about today, which is alcohol is so acceptable that when the guy comes out or the woman comes out of alcohol treatment, everywhere they go, people are drinking. Right. You know, it's so hard to stay sober unless you have, you know, a a great... And I remember this in the old days when it was so hard to find anybody who was sober. When you got sober a long time ago, uh, it was wonderful to find an AA meeting where they had like New Year's Eve parties without alcohol. It's the attitude of the whole collective has to change in order for treatment to really work. James, can you tell us what we're doing next week and then we'll come back and say goodbye. Coming up, sex, race, and class. Why is prostitution illegal? What's the crime? What would really help? Few of us know prostitution used to be legal even encouraged in the U.S. In her early days, there was often a lack of women. So you yourself may descend from a railway man or a gold miner who had kids with a prostitute, European, Asian, whoever was available. Prostitution didn't become illegal until the 20th century. Why? Who were those prostitutes? What were the forces that called for criminalization? Did they want females back in the home? Has criminalization helped prostitutes? Has it given them recourse against those who abused them? Has it protected kids who are being ensnared? Are poorer prostitutes and women of color being disproportionately imprisoned while politicians and businessmen merely use them at will? 
Sex, race, and class all factor into the criminalization of prostitution and its selective enforcement. And prostitutes have fought back. Tune in and learn more about prostitution and who's making money on it. And let's ask what would support those engaged in the trade. And now for a final word. Well, you see something very interesting here. Are you uh, watching the analogy? I love this. We started talking about alcohol today and the racial and the class issues and the social issues about that. And we're going to talk about prostitution next week, too. We're, going to, we're busting open these paradigms. I mean, whoever said, why is prostitution illegal? It may not be a great thing, but why is it illegal? Where did that come from? So we're really taking a look at some of these huge social issues that most of us forget about. And I'm very grateful that we're doing that. And we're going to see some of the same factors over and over. Chris, I would like to thank you really fast. You were great. You brought so much depth of information and passion to the show. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Chris. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for including me. And, you know, my heart goes out to everyone who listens to this. That Yes. All right. So until next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.